Anthony Carey is one of the world's foremost experts in corrective exercise and working with people in pain, as well as the creator of the innovative fitness product Cortex. In this episode, we talk about the power of specialization in the fitness industry, the learnings of bringing a product to market, and some of the key elements to his approach to the science of pain and pain management. Pain is not a direct reflection of tissue damage or tissue injury. It's a reflection of a whole bunch of things, including the threat that the brain feels um, the body is under. And that pain is a response to that. I had this image in my mind of standing on a round skateboard in a bowl and how that all the angle changes that would do to my midfoot, my ankle, my knee, my hip, and then how my, my torso would respond to all those things. And that's where the idea came up from. I'm Fraser Quelch, and this is a TRX Procast, where we chat with the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business, training, and life. Honestly, I'm one of those people that hasn't gone dramatically off course of what I thought I originally wanted to do. Uh, in high school, I always saw myself getting into sports medicine was something that I thought would be of interest to me. And I got into when I got to college, I realized that um, chemistry, biochem specific, was was going to be the death of me. So um, I became an exercise physiology major <laughs> instead. And uh, uh, but also knew from there it wasn't going to be enough and um, decided I wanted to go to graduate school and where I did get involved in the, in the uh, sports medicine program at San Diego State when I was out here um, and found that extremely interesting. Um, and I've been an athlete my whole life and, and played all sports through high school and, and even in college and intramurals and all that kind of stuff afterwards. And um, so often got hurt myself as well. So that sort of curiosity, intellectual curiosity about, hey, why is this happening? How's this healing? What's the process? Were all interesting to me. And then, um, you know, I actually had the really good fortune of being introduced to a guy named Peter Gosky when I got out of graduate school that uh, early on was somebody that just took a much more global uh, version and vision of the body um, and worked for him for a couple of years, became his director of education and was able to take sort of academia. And he's a self-taught guy. So I was able to sort of take the academic side uh, into their training and preparation. But uh, after a couple of years there, it became, you know, one of those cases where we felt we could build a better mousetrap and we started Function First. Myself and a couple of uh, other guys left and, and formed that many back in 1994. <laughs> um, when the word function was still rarely used uh, in mm -hmm. conversations. And then, you know, really that perspective was really a little bit more geared towards people in pain. And I found that to be extremely interesting. And uh, again, intellectually uh, driving my curiosity to be able to figure out everybody a little bit differently. Early on, it was a very biomechanical lens that we were looking through. And then eventually now up to this day, the combination of the uh, the, the biopsychosocial side of things, which was the, you know, looking at all the beliefs and attitudes around pain and, and then bringing in the coaching aspect and never realizing how critical all that was. Uh, we just, we just sort of took for granted. Um, but a lot of things that, that now are clearer and, and, and proven out in the, in the literature as well as part of the process to, and the success that clients will have in that respect. And so human movement's always sort of been my thing, trying to understand it and improve it. So, you just you just kind of high flew over just a whole bunch of stuff that there's there's a pile of nuggets in so we're going to come back and kind of I want to unpack a little bit of that but before we do as you were talking about being an athlete which I know at this stage is hard to believe but <laughs> um but but it, it, seriously though you were a really high level you were serious no I wasn't serious at all <laughs> Because um, I've actually played football with you. Well, I mean, I wasn't playing. You were playing, and I was like banging around. But you were a high-level, you were a high-level quarterback um, coming out of school. Coming out of high school, and and I did play in college. But um, I, you know, I had the tools. Put it that way. But um, and I so is is that? I mean, you talked about you know getting hurt and, and and that being your initial your initial inflow. Is it was on the football field or the, with those some of the injuries that uh, that that you'd, you'd suffered or was it just kind of just throughout sport? Uh, a little bit of both, but I, I you know, I, my three main sports were basketball, baseball, and football. So basketball, multiple ankle sprains. Mm -hmm. That was the thing in basketball, you know, a couple broken fingers, but yeah, football. And again, not major, major things, thank God. Um, but, you know, tendon strains and, um, 
you know, little minor AC separations, things like that, that, but ultimately it really impacted. It wasn't the kind of thing that was so debilitating that you got surgery, but you could also realize, okay, again, what's the process behind healing and what do I need to do to sort of get back to where I was instead of just taking time off or, you know, doing the, you know, the basics that the athletic trainer gives you and that sort of stuff. Right. So you're an athlete, you go to San Diego State, right? That's the that was school you graduate went? school. I went to San Diego State. Graduate school. And and in between, which school did you go to? Uh, Trenton State College, which is now called the College of New Jersey. Okay. So you go through you go through college into San Diego State to do your graduate studies, you come out. Uh, and in, in San Diego State you took what was your what was your uh, biomechanics was, and athletic training was my biomechanics and athletic training. So you were already on that road, as you said, like you were yeah. you were going down that pathway. So now you've got a uh, biomechanics athletic training, which at that stage is is pretty prescriptive. Like where you are now is certainly not. That's not what they taught you, right? So no. now you get now you get with Pete, and and he probably becomes your first your first real professional mentor. I'm guessing out of uh, out of it for an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah. Because we when you're in graduate school, you have some professors um, mm -hmm. that are advisor slash mentors. Um, sure. When you're in an athletic training room, you know, there's the, the head athletic trainers. And again, people that you would you would look to for some uh, professional insight or suggestions on, on the process. But I did spend enough time with Pete being there for a couple of years that um, he, he did end up being, he may not even know that at this point, but uh, that he did end up being a professional mentor. And so then you decide to stretch out on your own be like, okay, like I'm taking all this stuff. I've got a different direction. I feel like I can do it a little bit better. Got a few people around me and you start function first. So at that stage, how do you continue to form? Because again, from there you grew a whole lot. Like your approach is really unique and you're one of the best people in the whole world at what you do in terms of dealing with people in pain, uh, addressing the correctives. You've got this deep base in biomechanics and the Goshen method was, was one, as you said, one of the first people were starting to talk about function. Um, and then you take that a step further. So at a stage when, again, as you said, function is not something people are talking about. So how do you develop it from there, your ideas? Well, I think what, you know, one of the things that I was always big about was not cause, calling what we do a method. We called it an approach. And the reason why we did that, and the reason why I, I was adamant about that is because it gave us it gave us permission to evolve right you've got a method then you're either changing the method <laughs> right? right or you're you're doing something different and with if you have an approach which is a mindset and a philosophy and values uh, from there then you can you can grow and expand and not only through just your own um, your own understanding but also as the research uh, starts to expand and enlighten you in different aspects of what you're doing, you know, that can still go underneath that philosophy and, and, uh, and again, having those values as it relates to how you work with people and, and how you approach the body. So with that, um, we were able to just continually grow that way as well. And the button that we pushed for business for a client was, was pain, right? And, and addressing underlying movement issues um, and, and a heavy emphasis early on on posture which we realize now is not nearly as relevant as we thought it was then. But when you, when you marry that with all the other good things that we were doing, we still got, we still got phenomenal results. So um, it, it just really came down to finding people that were, were, you know, dissatisfied or frustrated with a lot of what they'd gone through in the contemporary medical model. So you're finding these clients that are coming in you're applying what your thought process is. And, and so it's basically like your own little lab. You know, the stuff yep. that's working, you're making note of, uh, the stuff that isn't, you're trying to throw away and, and, and trying to iterate and be creative on it to, to you know, looking up and, up and down the chain, perhaps. So where do you start to validate that? I mean, you, so you've got a practitioner's approach at this stage of, of you know, applying what you know, which based on what you've been taught, but also pioneering a little bit, being creative uh, in an area that at that stage was probably frowned on by the... Um, by some of the powers that be, right? I mean, the whole, the, you know, dealing with people in pain in 1994 as, a, as someone, I mean, as an athletic trainer, you would have been okay, but, you know, the physiotherapists were very protective about, about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So now you've got to be like, okay, I think this is the case. 
where are you getting, are you, are you, I mean, you've always been a pretty adamant researcher in terms of reading the literature. Are you, are you reading the peer-reviewed studies? How are you evolving from that front beyond just the clinical? What's been really interesting, I think, is I, I today will still use exercises and things that I used in 1994, right? So some of them yeah. are still great. And even, even some of the model of how we uh, meet with clients and how we set up our appointment schedules and all that are somewhat similar to what it was back then. What's, what's changed more than anything is the narrative behind it, right? And that's, that's because the science has changed. So I, I did this in 1994 and I thought it was doing this and I had great results. Well, it turns out it wasn't doing that, but I still had great results. So here's the better narrative that explains uh, why we're getting value out of what we're doing that way. Um, and so, you know, a big part of what my mission has been is to be able to put it in some kind of instructional format as well that other people can get value out of it, meaning other practitioners, other coaches, um, uh, and I've had physical therapists and chiropractors come through what we do as well because, again, it's sort of, it just, it takes them out of their, their current model or mindset and gives them a, a different way to view things a little bit. And, and that's been helpful. Well, and that whole side of things has been, has been more increasingly progressive as, as it's uh, and, and evolved, I think, as has gone along. I mean, being open to some of the information that guys like you are pushing out and, and others. So you talked a little bit earlier about pain being the business button that you pushed. Can you talk for a second about, because one of the things that, that I think is really common, especially as people coming out, you know, they hand you your business, their business card, and you look at it, and on the bottom of the business card, it tells you about all the things that they specialize in. Yeah. And there's literally a list of about you know, 10 things. You just went a different route. You, you said, hey, I'm a pain specialist. This is what I do. Now you did some other things for sure. I don't want to pigeonhole you, but that was the pain was the thing you set yourself that you pressed your button on. Can you talk a little bit about the power of deep specialization and how that kind of helped shape your business and your success? I, I have for years have said, run your niche deep, <laughs> not wide, right? Um, I don't compete on price, for example, with other trainers. And I've also become very good in terms of understanding and the literature that, that I'll read all sort of funnels into ultimately what I want to do with people or with movement with my other products, which means don't come to Anthony if you want to lose 10 pounds. Don't come to Anthony if you're trying to shave uh, two-tenths of a second off your 100-meter sprint, whatever. I'm going to refer you out to somebody else. Now, if there's a hiccup in, in some of your movement patterns that could use a little bit of influence, I'll, I'll do that, but, but I never... Uh, attempt to do any of that stuff. No bodybuilding, no general fitness stuff, no nutrition stuff, no sports-specific conditioning. Um, I, I do fill that specific niche. And to be, able to, uh, to be able to identify myself that way and then therefore people to see me that way um, means that uh, I've narrowed a bunch of the competition, number one. But probably more important than that, I, I've been able to grow what we do better because there's been a pretty much a singular focus, uh, but therefore it speaks for itself. Our results will speak for itself, so we don't have to do a lot of advertising, right? All the referrals and, and people saying, I mean, I've, I've literally seen clients from over 17 countries and 30-some states who've come to San Diego to see me since 1994 because a brother-in-law told them or, you know, their sister had been there, whatever it is, but these people are like, you know, they're so frustrated again with what they've done and they've gotten such a positive um, referral from somebody that they trust and they come to see me. And that's super powerful. So now you've got this deep specialization and you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, you start thinking to yourself, okay, I've got some things to share. You know, I think other people can benefit from the things I've learned, the efforts that I've put in, the teacher in you is crying out to, to get exercised a little bit. And so you start to present and, 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 you know, put your ideas out there and stuff. Tell me about, because I've, I've met a lot of people that want to write a book. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that process. You know, first of all, what gets you started? And, and then what are the, the challenges and the, just the, the shit that you didn't know about writing a book? And some of the, because it's, it's everybody I've ever talked to about writing a book. You know, envisioning it is one thing. And yeah. find that the reality, 
the story they tell after having completed it is is very different. Not that it is not worth it, but um, it's very different. Can you talk a little bit about you know your your process and talk about your book a little bit? Well, you know, it's, I'm due for another one, <laughs> or at least a less second version of the first one. Although it's, it's still uh, the, the first pain-free program, but um, probably like yourself, at the, even at that time, you know, 15 years ago, I had accumulated a, a, just a ton of articles and things I'd written already, right? Uh, some geared towards clients and some geared towards professionals and um, always knew that, uh, you know, there's there was a place for some value in a, and it was a self-help kind of book, right? So it was a book that um, allowed people to identify with certain things that are characteristics within their own bodies and, and their own lifestyle which was a little bit more detailed than here's a back book, um, you know, for you to do back exercises, right? It, it gave us a little bit more of a, a wider, a wider scope of who it could uh, attract. And, um, but it was, it was always certainly geared towards um, the end user, the consumer. It has in fact taken a second life where trainers use the exercise programs in there, which is, which is thrilling for me that it's still out there and help. And again, the narrative has changed, but the exercises still work for people. Um, but back then, it was, you know, when I first when I first was putting the book together, it was when literary agents were still very involved. They had a 90 to 98 uh, percent um, refusal rate who they they would take in. Um, so it was, you know, the whole first whole process is just trying to get somebody to represent you. Uh, books were still, even though Amazon was out, uh, books were still 80 percent of books were still sold in bookstores at the time. Um, and you know, it, but it was a lot different. You didn't have the same capacity, you didn't think beyond writing the book in terms of the marketing that had to go along with it and all that kind of stuff. So I, I enjoyed it. I didn't rush it. I took, I sort of took my time writing it at the same time, but it's one of those things when it, when it was done and, and the publisher bought it and all those fun things, um, I was elated and it's been a, it's been a calling card for years for me as well. So it is one of those things when you look back on it, you're like, what I've, what I've done it, but you know, I've, if I didn't have so many other things on my plate, I would do it again for sure. And I and I should. <laughs> now, I just want before we we're going to move off of off pain for a minute and some of the other projects you've been you've you've been doing for quite a long time now. But uh, I'm curious, are you seeing anything unusual or different from a pain perspective now versus pre-pandemic? Is there like a higher incidence of certain things that are making you kind of go, "Huh, oh, that's interesting," based on people staying at home, people not commuting as much, people. Um, or is it sort of the same, same kind of stuff you're seeing? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's hard. It's actually difficult for me to, to identify that. What I can say that is one of the things that we know that is. Um, so when we look at pain these days, the the, the model is looking through a three-legged, looking at a three-legged stool where there's a biological, biomechanical, biophysical, biochemical, and there's a psychological, and then there's a sociological aspect to it, right? Mm -hmm. So. If nothing has changed in their biomechanics, which it may have, because now they're working from home and you know sitting on the deep couch on their laptop and not getting up as often because there's nobody else in the office to talk, all those things may have changed as well. But the uh, but the lack of social outlet, um, the the anxiety, the stress, uh, those kind of things are all part of the the big old bowl of soup that adds to the pain experience. So things that may not have typically bothered them in the past because they had other outlets um, could be something that's contributing just to just to an uptick in their own personal uh, experience at this time. But um, you know, just in terms of like workspaces and stuff like that, yeah, there's a lot of people that are sort of compromised now because they don't have the fancy desk and chairs and all that stuff that they have at at, at work. Um, so that's that's always a factor as well. So yeah, just before we move off, can you expand a little bit? You talked about your pillars of the way that you kind of look at the at the pain experience. Can you just expand a little bit on each one of those? That way, people who are listening can be like, "Oh, okay, I kind of understand a little bit better of how your approach actually works." Sure. Now, and and that's that's not me. That's the science, right? Yeah. So that's yeah, it's, it's considered it's considered a biopsychosocial experience, right? So the in, the interesting thing about that is, and I used and you, I've just used the word at least twice, experience, and not a sensation. Right? So pain is in fact a, is an experience and it affects everybody differently. Right? And if you think of something as as really um, sort of one end of the spectrum, like phantom limb pain, right? Why does a person get pain in a foot that's no longer there? It's because there's still a representation of that foot in their brain. 
And the, the critical message that we communicate to clients about that, in no way, please, in no way here that this means it's in your head. It just means that your, your brain is the governor, right? It's command central up there. So um, we, pain is not a direct reflection of tissue damage or tissue injury. It's a reflection of a whole bunch of things, including the threat that the brain feels um, the body is under. And that pain is a response to that, right? So there, there's certainly... A, a, again, a biomechanical, biochemical, biophysiological, neurological um, component to that because it is sending data to the brain. Now, once it gets to the brain, the data has a whole bunch of things that it has to compare it to or compare it against to determine if this is, if this is a threat. And, and therefore, if it's a threat and it's dangerous, will pain service at this point, right? So then, so then it, it looks to past experiences. It looks to what my beliefs are about my, my back um, what's my attitude about healing? Oh, is it because I'm overweight? I sit too much. I smoke. My mom had back pain. Uh, my dad had back surgery, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, on top of that, you know, oh, my back hurts. Am I going to be able to work today? I can't get the kids to school. All of that starts to create a, a global experience that can magnify the physiological response and ultimately, I'm in way more pain than I need to be, right? Or the difference could be I'm the guy in the hospital that doesn't realize that there's a knife sticking out of my shoulder because something happened in my hand. And until somebody tells me that, I don't realize there's a knife in my shoulder because my body's focused on this hand that's almost falling off. And then I go, oh, my God, my, my shoulder, because I, I don't have the connection to that or the, my brain is not paying attention to that. Right? It's, it's super interesting in, in just how much that influences it. Having said that, that's great information for people to have, and they all process it a little bit different, and they have to be a, a different spot within their journey of how receptive they are to it. But you can't just turn it off either. Oh, now that I understand that because I saw an MRI that said my back was bad, and I also am afraid that I'm not going to be able to earn any income for my family, if I can make those... I can just pretend they don't exist. My pain's going to go. That's not true either. Mm -hmm. right? There's still there's still a, uh, there's still a physiological or biomechanical driver that 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 is the genesis of, of this in the first place. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely fascinating. Thanks for talking about it. And as you as you're speaking, I'm of course reminded of of, uh, of Lorimer Mosley's um, amazing story about about exactly what it is you're talking about, um, and and the brain's uh, how pain actually actually works. So if anybody's uh, hasn't seen Dr. Norman Mosley talk about that. Uh, search him. TED Talk. Yeah, search his TED Talk out, and I guarantee you'll have better understanding, and and um, and you'll also be highly amused because it's a it's a it's an amazing I, story. But he's an entertaining guy. I, I ref we have that up on our on our blog. We have a link to that, and I refer my clients to that all the time. Not not only is he one of the the pre preeminent researchers in the field. Also, one of the most entertaining speakers you'll ever listen to on a absolutely, like that, right? yeah, and with with some with a unique personal story to actually uh, to, to to pull it all up. So, yeah, um, yeah that's a, that's a, that's a great resource. All right, so you've got your business function first is cranking along. You've got your book out there. You've you've established yourself. You've won a bunch of industry awards, all that kind of thing. So, what possesses you to take a flying saucer? And then put it on wheels, so it slides all around. So I'm talking obviously about the cortex, and I'm being a bit facetious, but but um, tell me about that process. So cortex has been out for ten years now, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people say this, and 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 I'm going to say it because I believe with all my heart. I think we were before our time, to be honest with you, um, in a lot of ways. You know, I was I was literally standing in a squat rack in a commercial gym one day, and I was trying to figure out. Well, I was thinking to myself, I'm here I'm going to do another front-to-back linear up-and-down motion, and how can I stimulate my body in different ways? And I had, this, I had this image in my mind of standing on a round skateboard in a bowl and how that all the angle changes that would do to my midfoot, my ankle, my knee, my hip, and then how my, my torso would respond to all those things. And that's where the idea came up from. And then it became just a hobby. We started playing around with a bunch of different ideas and over time. And then, you know, finally we did come, come to market with it, first iteration of it. It's been a slow process. But the beauty, I think, of what's happening is people, especially as people are better understanding function and, and seeing, and, and again, variability, which is, a, one of, again, one of our pillars in both, in everything that I do, both in function first and the cortex, is 
is introducing that variability to the to the system so that the system can thrive with those with those challenges. You know, it it it, it again. You're right because it, it was one of those things. People be like, dude, just just stay stay in your lane. <laughs> well, no, and I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical, and I make light of the flying saucer and multi-directional rollers all in a bowl. But basically, if you fill the, if you have, if you're not familiar with the cortex, think of literally a flying saucer sitting in a bowl with ball bearings inside the bowl, so it slides and tilts and, and twists. And that's what you get it in. And again, it was it was one of the most unique products I think I've ever seen. In that, it's one of those like, what evil genius thought this thing up? Because it, it's it's so unusual and yet uh, offers so many different different things. So let's I want to dig into that a little bit because lots of people have ideas about hey I've got this this cool idea that I want to bring to market. So tell me about what, what was the early input? I, I'd, I'd love to know what the first iteration looked like. Like, what was it, was it, how'd you build the first one? So you know what a, um, if you've ever been in a warehouse and saw the big fans that they have, mm -hmm. you know, it could be anywhere three to four feet tall, but they sit on a big base, big steel mm. base. So we took one of those, flipped it upside down, Put a piece of plywood on the inside, yeah. on the top, so that yeah. it had like a platform. So it's almost like a BOSU, except the yeah. hard turned upside down. Turned upside except down. Hard. Yeah. And then we uh, we positioned, a, and at the time it was six ball ball transfers, mm -hmm. all on the same tangent, same angle as as that upside down dome, to see if we could reproduce. So we did. I mean, if you think it's if you think it's challenging now, you should try <laughs> should try it then when. There was no handrail, no, no stopper. There's nothing. Oh, the first one I saw didn't have any handrail. I was, I was in one of your early test groups. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's, that's for sure. Um, multiple times I was like, "Hey, praise, <laughs> come and stand on this thing, <laughs> and I'm gonna make. I'm gonna get you back for all that T-Rex stuff you made me do." Exactly. So you you got this idea. It starts to go. What's the early input that you're getting from people who are, who are who you're taking through it. You know, so you build this thing and you're really excited about it and you can see, you know, you can see the runway. You can see how you're going to use it. You can see how it's going to be effective, which isn't to say anyone else can see it. That's right. Um, but, but you can see it. So you're getting these inputs from folks. What, what, are, what, are, what are some of the things people are telling you, both good and bad? So it was, a mix, it was definitely a mixed bag. Um, you know, some people, uh, some people just thought it was too advanced. Which was understandable because it, it's complete. Still is completely. It's patented, so it's completely different than, than anything else that's out there, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, some people would be just it's too advanced. Uh, other people would they didn't get it because again, this is the point about being early. Even and I, I won't bring up the name, but some, one of our colleagues, a good friend of ours actually, who's who early on was a, a big proponent of balance, um, and it's not and it obviously does more than balance, but he didn't get it, right? And and I and I. How can you not get this in that everything that you've been doing at this point has just been tilting side to side, maybe with a tiny little, a tiny little mini turn to it, but nothing that translated and rotated and tilted at the same time, right? right. And then, of course, we always had the idea – I shouldn't say that. We, we didn't always have the idea of the handrail, but we realized the handrail was, was a value for many reasons, but um, – but, you know, but then I showed it to some people that were more on the business side mm -hmm. and not the technical side, or maybe, you know, not the practitioner side, right. and they saw the fact that there was nothing else out in the market and, and that sort of thing. And, and probably the most important person of all that was somebody who's currently my business partner, and, and again, going back to mentors, one of the greatest mentors that I could have ever asked for, who's Tom Campanero from Total Gym. Mm. He saw it very early on, and he saw the... Um, he saw the fact that there was nothing. And here's a guy that's been in 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 the industry since the 70s, right? Sure. Um, you know, having him listen to me, and he he didn't get involved till later, right. much later. But he'd always been somebody I could bounce ideas off of and that sort of thing. So, um, and you know, and we went into it a little bit blindly, realizing that, um, you know, not realizing the entire process from production to uh, marketing to all those all those things that go along with it, right? So, so that's exactly where I want to go now. So you've got this idea, you've got an upside down fan thing with a piece of plywood on it, and, and then you start to iterate and and evolve 
and you get into so tell me about the process of well, we've got the invention piece down but the process of iteration and then expanding into you know now you're stepping into an area that you have absolutely no prior knowledge about which is how do i bring a product to market and you just you just touched on this a second ago how do i market this how do i who do i even talk to how do i manufacture it where do i manufacture it how many do i manufacture all of those questions that you have yeah. to answer those are all big questions that have potential big costs and risk associated with them so tell me about that your learning curve and and um you know things that you would do differently or things that you managed to get right yeah, two. One of the things that I did have as an advantage is uh, early on, um, when I say we, uh, one of my former teammates from college and, and and a friend was an engineer, so he was very much involved in the early stages of of the Cortex and the company. Mm. And um, he was not only was an engineer, he was a kind of manufacturing engineer. So uh, he had some relationships with manufacturers. He understood sort of cost of goods and 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 you know how that how that translated into margins and all that kind of, he, he had that side of it uh, reasonably covered, which was helpful. At first, the downside to that is that I never learned it till way too late, until when I had to learn it, um, because I just bypassed that, that to him. But what he didn't have, um, he didn't have any of the entrepreneurial mindset, he didn't have an understanding of investing in um, marketing and advertising and, and all the things that you needed to do to be able to take them. So in other words, you, you put you, you have this pool of money and you and you and you blow your nut on inventory and now it's all sitting in, in either your garage or a warehouse somewhere right and now what you know build it and they will come you know in the field of dreams or uh, do you got to do something and so we learned pretty quickly um, that we had to start to partner with with other people if we could you know distributors and that sort of thing get to the trade shows all that and cha-ching 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 right it's right. Uh, you know, not not having a budget ahead of time and all that kind of stuff was just mind blowing. So, what were some of the ways that you you marketed it on the early end? So, you've got to think. I mean, one of the biggest challenges, and we talked about this on on this podcast before, but the, one of the biggest challenges facing any entrepreneur is, regardless of if they're selling a service or a product or both, is how do you get out of the swamp of obscurity into the clean air of uh, of you know above the radar where you actually people know of you and you can actually um, you know the sales aren't quite so hard won. What what was your approach to to getting out of obscurity, especially the product like the cortex, which not it's not intuitive. People aren't going to get it. They're not going to see it and go ah okay, I get it. No, but what almost another challenge though was they see it and they think it does X, which means mm -hmm. I, I stand on it and I turn and then I work on my balance. And that's to this day that continues to be. <laughs> our challenge is to overcome that that perception. Mm -hmm. We had a little bit of an advantage that I was in the fitness industry and, and I had a lot of contacts and I had a little bit of a name. Um, so there was some low hanging fruit where people would at least listen and take a look at it um, because because they knew you know I wasn't going to bring a piece of garbage to, to market. So that helped. I uh, was able to get early on, was able to uh, get into the Perform Better um, catalog. Uh, at the beginning, which was really helpful. Matter of fact, they even put us on the back cover of their of their catalog when we first came out, uh, because again, Chris, who's somebody who knows equipment, um, really uh, saw the fact that this is something different and, and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, but then it, it became it became okay. So I got all the low hanging fruit, but how do you scale this? And um, not to to my my fault, not being a full time. Equipment manufacturer, distributor, dealer, all that, still doing function first things, still teaching, all that kind of stuff. It never got all the attention that it needed. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we just we just kind of incrementally moved along year after year, and um, you know, we're we're probably in 30 countries now, and and um, sales are still nowhere where I want them to be. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got a lot of, you know, I always say when we look at the um, if you look at the quality over the quantity of our users, we're doing okay. The professional sports teams, the Olympic training centers, um, you know, Hollywood people, top of the, top of those line trainers that are using it. That's that's rewarding for us for sure. For sure, uh, I certainly remember you know early on you getting in front of of uh, you know a series of influencers and like taking them through. You know, here's what it does, and here's how you think you could use it, and. Um, specifically, I remember a, 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 like a really, really strong group in, in the UK where you did that. However, 
uh, we'll move on from there. So, so tell me what's how have you iterated recently with it? Because I know I've seen there's there's a, a new version of it. How do you continue to to iterate on this? Just the concept and and the I guess the principles behind Cortex. Well, the principle will rem always will remain the same, I think, um, which is you know creating that environment for variability and reactive variability in our case because of, of, the, of the responsiveness of the platform. We did com we did completely revamp the model, the design, everything uh, a few years ago, and we were able to get our costs down, a lot of good things like that. And since then, um, this year though, we were we're just getting ready to release a, an all black version that is so slick looking, I and mean, it, it's it's super sharp. So really happy about that. And people have a choice now between a couple different colors. Um, right. We also we also came out with a second handrail a couple years ago, which which has been a, a big draw to the physical therapy as well. Second handrail, a seat belt, some kind of harness system to keep <laughs> crash home. No, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, the uh, so second handrail is is uh, the the rehab group on is... the rehab side and, and seniors they prefer to step into it and step on versus stepping on it has been one of the big things. Also gives mm -hmm. another anchor point for the upper extremities when you're doing right. certain things. So. Um, yeah, we're in a lot of we're in a lot of physical. Matter of fact, our, our business has shifted. Probably, we're probably sixty-five uh, percent into rehab now. More than going way back, as I said early on, it was a lot of fitness and, and just mm -hmm. kind of my uh, my network that way. Um, and that's changed. And and then we're getting ready to launch in the fall a second product called the Cortex Sit, which is again same principles, creating variability, but it's going it's something that can go on most chairs, only about sixteen inches in diameter. And instead of it being flat, it's convex on the top. Uh, so it's almost like sitting on a little saddle. Um, and it goes through all those same tilt, slide, and rotation at the same time. So the, so the variability that, that adds to the tissue and, the, and the, uh, the joints of the lower back, hydration, all those kind of things, constantly keeping those structures from being loaded continuously. And, uh, and it's a great little exercise device for, for that and pelvic floor. And we're really super excited. And that's going to be consumer-facing. So... But people like you and I who are spending way more time working from home now, mm -hmm. uh, couldn't be a better time to launch it. No, absolutely, that's uh, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to to seeing how how that whole thing goes. So, tell me about. We um, just want to. What, what are the what are the, maybe the three key things if, of if you someone saying, hey, look, I've got this product, I want to bring it to market. Um, you know, like they they take you through. What do you think? What are the what are the three things, the three pieces of advice you would you would give somebody who's who's you're having that conversation with? Well, number one is I would make sure it's not a me too product, mm -hmm. right? And there's so many things, and our industry is just notorious for this, right? Me too products, and, and well, you guys know about it better than anybody. But or it's just this minor little tiny iteration that's different. That's not enough to. Uh, to stand out alone, and if it's just a little, if it's an independent inventor coming out um, and not somebody with a huge bankroll that's trying to do it, they're, they're really not creating any kind of any kind of point of differentiation. Mm -hmm. And it's really not. And if you if you can't if you can't see it and and easily explain it, so either you put it down and somebody uses it and you can see what it does, or um, where they can just they can understand it just by its design. Uh, that's always going to be that's always going to be part of the challenge and the communication part. So if you don't have that, it's almost not, you know, it's almost not worth trying to put your your blood, sweat, and tears and your savings into that. The other thing is, um, it's great to have an idea. It's even great to to tool around and come up with some individual prototypes. Uh, but if you can't see the the route to financial success from it. Um, and, and, and number one, define what that means to you. Mm -hmm. And number two, figure out what is that path, what's it look like, right? So if you've got $10,000 in the bank and it's going to cost you $10,000 to produce this, what's next, right? How do you get there? Mm -hmm. um, and then the third is I would probably realize, say that, you know what, there's no shame in partnering with somebody else that has the resources uh, that may be, it may be a complementary uh, piece of equipment or whatever it is to somebody else that's already got the database and is looking to fill that need in that niche. You know, have that intellectual property protection that you need to have and, you know, have those non-disclosures that you want people to, to, you know, do that protective side of things. But, man, it's it could have been, it can be really, really 
fast-tracked if you go with somebody that's already uh, established themselves in the market and has the resources, has the network, has all those things that can help you from production to marketing to distribution uh, mm -hmm. right off the bat. Uh, there's no shame in that at all. And there's, there's hundreds of thousands of inventors that have probably made more money than you and I will ever know by doing just that. Right. Right? And ends up on TV or something else, and it's a little thing, and they just let, let somebody else run with it and take a royalty. So speaking of being on TV, you took the Cortex on TV at one point. Can you tell me about that experience? That was, that was fun. It was, uh, and uh, our good friend Randy Hetrick, who was one of the uh, judges, coincidentally, on the show, which I didn't know until I arrived the first day that he was going to be one of the judges. That must um, have been quite a surprise. Well, it was, and it also I, I wanted, you know, I, I had to disclose that I knew Randy ahead of time, and, and right. the producers were like, fine, uh, there's a lot of people here that knew Randy anyway, so, um, but yeah, was, and Jillian Michaels was sort of the main host of the show, and it was really about, uh, and, and the theme of the show, which it didn't end up playing out this way, as many people can attest, was, you know, what what's the next big thing because of innovation, right? It became a little bit more about fat loss, but right, uh, right. it was a whole summer, pretty much, of filming, and uh, it was exciting to, you know, because it, it did put you in a position where you had to be able to think about the business model, uh, be able to demonstrate what you can do, justify why your product deserves to be um, in the marketplace, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and that it's, it's not just, uh, you know, something you're tinkering with in your garage and all that kind of stuff. So from that, that respect, it was a lot of fun. And, and we, got, we did get a lot of um, exposure because of it. And I, and I really did get a lot of, I learned lessons, both from Randy and, and, and Jillian specifically. And I was the third judge who was a little bit more of an exercise physiologist. But, you know, Jillian's been around enough um, in the industry long enough to ask good questions and have good ideas about the business side. And, of course, Randy is, is somebody that I, I often look to as, a, as an advisor and, and a mentor when it comes to what he's done with TRX. Right. We're just about out of time, so I want to get into some of my, my final rounds of questions. These, these are the ones that are fun. Um, can you tell me what's, your, what's the most profound professional moment that you've had? Do you think back about your career and like the, all of the different interactions you've had? And can you think, is there one that sort of stands out as like, wow, that was just so pivotal at the time and, and, um, and had okay, a big impact? Actually, I recently thought about this and was going to share it in a blog post. Um, back when I was working, um, so this was probably 1993 or, or 94 before I had left Egoscu, I got to work with uh, Jonas Salk, who was a Nobel Peace Prize winner who helped develop the polio vaccine. He has a, a whole Salk Institute here in San Diego. Um, and he was, he was in his 80s, I guess, probably at the time. And he was coming in for his, his back. His son also uh, uh, who's also a scientist, was coming in as well. But I got to work with, with uh, Jonas. And so here, uh, just imagine the impact that this guy's had on global health, right? Mm, and, unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, all of us, are, are, our lives are different because of, because of that, right? And his, and his institute continued even back then. It was, it was contributing to, you know, ongoing research and, and the body of knowledge that was, that was keeping us safe here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he was the most uh, humble, soft-spoken, open to the advice and the instruction that I was giving him to help him to get to where he wanted to be with his ex. You would have no idea that this guy could have ran circles around me um, in any aspect of human anatomy or physiology, right? Mm. He, was, he was one of the most coachable, kind, clients I'd ever worked with, right? To the point where this many years later, when I still think back on it, because people, you know, you, just like you, we've worked with professional athletes and, been, and all that, right? But uh, here's this tiny little old man that that long ago left that kind of mark on me because of, of uh, just how receptive and humble and, and willing he was to do what, what was going to be best for him to, to help him move to the, where he wanted to be with his body. Um, never never in any way condescending, never in any way uh, uh, made me feel like I should, you know, be bowing down in front of him or anything like that. And, uh, and that did leave a mark on me in terms of uh, the, the, the degree of humility that we should be carrying with ourselves at all times. So as we get to, as, as you and I get to speak in front of them, we have newbies that come up to us, right? 
and they, maybe they ask a question that really doesn't make all that much sense. I've seen you do it a million times where you give people that time and, and you're kind enough and you're willing enough to, to depart some value on top of them, even though you've got people grabbing you here and there at conferences and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and having that, that mindset and, and the fact that we can, even that 15 to 20 second interaction that we can have with somebody in passing at a, at a conference that looks to us for, for some kind of insight or some kind of guidance um, probably makes a tremendous difference uh, that we're not aware of. Um, and adds, and again, it just adds to, to the humanity of what we're doing on a regular basis. What a great story. I love that. So what are you most excited uh, about or focused on in, in your own training right now? What are you doing, Francis Carey? For me, you know, I'm, I've really started to take a, a much bigger interest in, well, I've always been a big uh, into personal growth, actually, has been a big part of it. And, and along with that is I, I really want to do as much as I can do for brain health these days. So speaking of, of you know, football and sports and mountain biking and all that, there's, there's been one or two bumps on the, on the head, um, those kind of things that, that make you think, oh, you know, those little forgetful moments and all those kind of things that start to happen uh, as we get a little bit older. So I, I want to be optimized with that. So nutritionally things that I do, uh, meditation, um, other kind of uh, brain input through sounds, binaural beats, uh, speed reading, all these things that, that, that are going to challenge me that way is a big part of it. And then I combine that with the, with the cardiovascular side of things as well. Um, and, you know, how much am I interpreting or how much better am I absorbing information when my heart rate's up and depending on the type of exercise and those kind of things. Um, I, I try to combine it that way. I've got, and obviously, just want to maintain being pain-free and mobile, and, and, uh, and I, they're the kind of things I do. And, and you know, am I ever going to be down to 10% body fat again? Probably not. But if I'm at, you know, if I'm at 13 to 15, I, I, can, be, I can be pretty happy. Totally. That's very cool. Uh, who are you currently inspired by? Who, who or what makes you go, that switches you on? Like where, where do you, uh, yeah, where's your inspiration coming from these days? I guess it depends on, you know, what bucket in, our, in my life we're talking about. I get inspired by a lot of different people depending on, you know, is it personal growth? Is it, is it brain health? Is it, um, uh, you know, is it learning more about the biomechanics or, or the, the neurophysiology or whatever I'm, I'm currently uh, got my, my eyes on at the time? Who would you point me to right now? Just on phrase. You've got you to gotta look into what this person's talking about. Or you've got to... Well, it, it, you know, some people are going to find this corny, but, um, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of Anthony Robbins for years. And to this day, I still, I still listen to his stuff. And, and one of the biggest things that I think many people don't associate with him, which has been a... a sort of part of his mission in the last couple of years is financial acumen, right? And understanding, you know, what we're doing with our, with our investment accounts and, and the money that's going out in fees and that kind of stuff. And, you know, as we, as you're, so we're putting money away for our kids for college and, and um, you know, in, in a time like this, understanding uh, where some of um, some of the expenses are that we're not aware of, right? You know, I've, I've definitely learned um, not to go blindly into the into the night and just keep you know depositing certain things. I've moved accounts around. I've gotten. I've gone and gone out of certain funds and in, in others and and um, basically how we're getting raked over the coals by by some of these financial institutions and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So um, you know, minor little tweaks to that for any of us can can pay off big time in 20, 30, 40 years from now. Well, that's absolutely, I mean, that's absolutely hundreds right. Of hundreds of thousands of dollars pay off. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you have the whole day to yourself. No responsibilities whatsoever. What do you choose to do? Uh, I choose to go down to early in the morning. I go down to the coast in La Jolla uh, by the Cove area down there. If you, uh, if anybody that's ever been along there where the wedding bowl is and down that way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to drink my coffee. I'm going to do my meditation and my journaling. Uh, I'm going to think about the day uh, from there. Then I'm going to take my stand-up paddle board uh, down to La Jolla Shores and paddle out into the caves and all around that way uh, and come back. Um, am I alone or am I with somebody? You can be with whoever you want to be with. Okay. It's your day. You've got no responsibility. Oh, that's right. Well, then I'm, then I'm going to meet my wife for, for lunch where we can uh, 
We can sit and, and again look over the ocean somewhere, maybe in La Jolla, maybe in Del Mar, uh, spend a couple hours there, and then probably uh, probably head back towards where where we live, about 10 miles inland, and, and take a hike up uh, Cows Mountain, which is just two miles from our house, uh, which we enjoy doing together uh, at the top there. Uh, come down, uh, grab the kids, um, take them out for a huge dinner somewhere at a, at a beautiful outdoor restaurant, probably a, a sushi for them, um, where we do that. And then, uh, then I'd come home, and after dinner, I'd probably uh, let everybody off and do their own thing, and then I would, I would read. Sounds like a pretty good day. Yeah, it's it would be. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's That's not, not bad. bad. I mean, if bad. I could jump on my private jet and go to Fiji, I would do that. But the, the jets um, in the shop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes <laughs> you got to get repairs. Um, last one. You're still a relatively young guy. Is this your life's work? What's next? You know. My life's work is is to improve the quality of life through movement with as many people as I can. And right now, that is a matter of uh, getting my products out there that can help people, um, getting our education out in the pain-free movement specialist, getting that out so other practitioners can help that. And then there'll probably be something next that will be geared towards, um, you know, getting getting the ability to influence kids early on. Um, especially underprivileged kids and uh, uh, an associate economic scale uh, to get them doing some things that again can lead into into better performance in school for them as well. Um, but it'll always be about moving. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world. Get your access by the link in the episode description below.